when you decide that the cover crop is as important as the cash crop, mm-hmm. you will then be successful with that cash crop. What I always say is the success of next year's cash crop begins with the success of this year's cover crop. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the 296th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, community food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. At one point, while presenting at the 2022 Montana Organic Association Annual Conference, West Central Indiana farmer Rick Clark flashed a slide showing a set of numbers. The slide was labeled Stability a title that doesn't exactly light your imagination on fire. But upon closer examination, the data represented in that chart provided one of the most convincing arguments I've ever seen for utilizing cover crops. What it showed was that before Rick adopted cover crops in his 7,000-acre operation, the variance in corn yields from year to year, otherwise known as the standard deviation, was 28 bushels per acre. Today, his annual yields vary on average less than 5 bushels per acre. For soybeans, his standard deviation has gone from over 8 bushels per acre to less than 3. That nice, consistent stability is money in the bank, says Rick, who raises corn, soybeans, wheat, alfalfa, peas, milo, cattle, sheep, and, of course, cover crops. Around 5,600 acres of his operation is certified organic. What's particularly impressive about Rick's farming enterprise is that he avoids tillage. One criticism of organic cropping is that it often relies on heavy soil disturbance to control weeds, and that can result in increased erosion and a general reduction in good aggregate structure. But Rick plants his cash crops straight into standing cover crops and then uses a roller crimper to lay down and terminate those covers, creating a thick soil mulch. It's a technique called planting green. He also relies on diverse rotations as well as integrating livestock into his operation. And through it all, his number one rule is to treat cover crops as the equal to his cash crops, to the point where he'll sometimes sacrifice short-term yield for the sake of long-term soil health. One of the farmer's main goals is to, as much as possible, take advantage of what he calls the free stuff available in nature, such as solar energy and natural biology. He may not be pulling in record-breaking yields year after year, but Rick is getting the kind of consistency that resembles a gentle sine wave. And because he's building the kind of soil health that is much less reliant on purchase inputs for fertility and weed control, his profitability is also consistent. Rick says his overall yield of cash crops has been increasing over the years as the soil biome becomes more self-reliant. And that creates a kind of stability that's quietly building a truly regenerative operation. After his presentation, Rick talked to me about cashing in on cover crops, why low standard deviations are exciting, and how farming can sometimes resemble a good round of golf. So one of the things you really emphasize, and I think this is a super important point, is that some people don't treat cover crops like a cash crop. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I drive this message home pretty pretty, pretty good and a, and a lot because it's that important. Uh, when you decide that the cover crop is as important as the cash crop, mm-hmm. you will then be successful with that cash crop. What I always say is, The success of next year's cash crop begins with the success of this year's cover crop. And and just to hear that, those words, it's that important. And I can show you and tell you that timing of when cover crops are planted in the fall makes a huge difference 
of the success and what they can do for you the following spring. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing. You wouldn't think that's the case, but it, it is so much true that the timing is, is extremely important when you plant these cover crops. Can you just take us briefly through, I know it varies quite a bit, but what would be a typical cycle? I don't want to call yeah. it a year because, like you said, you're starting a year before, but what would be a particular yeah. cycle for you? Yeah, the, a, a, a typical rotation is probably going to be something like uh, coming out of alfalfa, then we're probably going to go to corn, then we're probably going to come out of corn and go to soybeans. Then we're going to probably come from soybeans to, to a cereal grain. Then we will not double crop that cereal grain with another crop. We will then focus on a cocktail to put into that, that field after the cereal crop has come off. Then we might go back to a milo in that situation and then come out of milo and, and probably uh, go to another uh, cover crop and then get ready for soybeans again. And then we'll probably go to peas and then come back out of the peas and then go back into corn. So we're trying, we're trying to keep the crops from, from repeating at a greater frequency. In other words, I didn't say that very well, but yeah. corn every five years maybe okay. instead of every three or every two. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to move those frequencies out. And then there are those times when a field gets out of step and we have to go into what I call a regen year. And that's where we uh, focus on cool season cocktails, warm season cocktails, and then that final cocktail for whatever that next cash crop's gonna be. So we've uh, we've given the opportunity for a whole year of cover cropping to build that soil health build the microbial biome, increase carbon, increase uh, water infiltration, all these things that are attributed to soil health, you can just really, you know, maximize this into a 12-month period and bring that field back into the rotation then. That's what we try to do. One of the most striking slides you showed last night was the one related to stability and kind of uh, that whole idea of your standard deviation, narrowing that standard, I think that's a super important piece because you talk a lot about sometimes you are going to accept lower yields. Uh, put, I guess you're, you're sacrificing it on the altar of building that soil health yeah. in the long term. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of my points in the, in the presentation is I will sacrifice uh, yield to maintain soil health. Mm-hmm. Do it every day. But, but yeah, when, when you look at the data, and that, let's just stop right there, data. Mm-hmm. You've got to collect data. You have to collect everything you're doing every step of the way and then not only collect that data, but then figure out a way to look at that data and, and, and crunch it and move it out into different scenarios and look at what is happening in front of your eyes. So now uh, when I build that stability chart, the only way to build that is to have 15 years of data. Yeah. And that's what we did. And it shows that as you get deeper and deeper into no-till cover crop slash building soil health slash following this, the principles of soil health, whatever you want to, however you want to phrase this, you become very stable in your yield environment. And this is important because then you can make decisions. I mean, good, uh, good data puts you in positions of strength, and that's where you need to be, yeah. in a position of strength. Well, and can you give me an example? You had a really good example, I think, with both corn and beans, What, how you've, how much you've lowered yeah. your standard deviation. Oh. It's, it's like almost a sine wave. Yeah. Instead of hitting those peaks, and, it's but, just a flat line. It's just a flat line, but it's a nice, consistent one. That's right. Uh, in, in the going back, what now, 12 years, 
uh, we would uh, see uh, the variance of yield up to 30 bushel in corn. Now this, well, so here's what I mean by this. When you put the combine, you've come along the end rows and you've set back in and you're going through the field and harvesting. When you're harvesting, you're seeing your yield swing by 30 bushel. That's not very stable. After you implement the cover crop, the no-till, and all these things that we're doing to build soil health, that yield variance dropped to less than five. This is incredible. Now you're stable. And not only was the that yield variance decreasing and becoming stable, the year-over-year yield was increasing. So we've gained stability and we're increasing yield. So I don't know why more farmers don't do this. I don't understand why they would not want to save money on inputs, have increased yield, and be a good steward to the land. I don't understand that. Well, my, my uh, thinking on that is because there's those years when you can get incredible yields, and that is really yeah. tantalizing to chase that. You know, if, I don't know if you play golf or not, but it's kind of like when you're out on the golf course and you haven't had a very good round, and on that last hole you have that, wow, look at that shot, I'll be back next time. It's that <laughs> kind of thing you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a really good piece, and I think that I saw a lot of uh, heads nodding in, yeah. the, in the audience over that thing. Yeah. I'll tell you what I really... What I really like, and and I've not done this yet because, honestly, I don't know who to contact for this, and maybe someone can reach out, but you hear me talk about baselining a lot. You have to baseline to see where you are. I think, and I did not mention this last night, it's just coming to me right now, we need to figure out what calculator we're going to use to figure out what the carbon footprint size is when a farm decides to switch to, to regenerative. Okay, let's baseline that. Yeah. So I don't know what, I don't know, let's just use enough fictitious numbers. Right. Let's say your carbon footprint is 90. Well, then when you're into year two, you do the same test again, your carbon footprint is now at 70. Mm-hmm. Then you're in year four, it's at 50. Now you go to year seven, we've dropped it to 20. And now by year 10, you've gone negative. So you actually are sequestering more carbon than your system is, out, is, is inputting. And that is where we need to get to. Yeah. We've got to be in a negative situation. Yeah, and I think you made a point last night that this whole excitement around carbon offsets, it's a little tricky because yeah. we don't have a great way of measuring it. We don't have a baseline, and it kind of makes it into just one more isolated commodity yeah yeah I you know and I, and I don't mean to be so negative on it but I'm just trying to inform the audience that they need to be careful don't go out and and sign up for some flyby carbon situation when you could be locked I mean some of these uh, contracts lock you in for 20 and 30 years you can't get out so please please be careful and just go slow and make sure that, that all this has gotten figured out. Can you talk about your 70-30 rule? 70-30 rule. That's where 70% of the weed suppression that we need is coming from the cover crop. And the other 30% of the suppression is coming from the cash crop canopy. So when you start to think about that, and as the further you get deeper into building soil health, your microbial engine is running in overdrive. Mm-hmm. And whatever the material is that you're laying down is going to get consumed quickly. Now, if it's, an, if it's a straight cereal rye crop, you're looking at maybe a 70 to 80 to 1 carbon to nitrogen ratio. That's going to take a little bit longer, but it's, it's going to amaze you how quick they can consume that high of a carbon to nitrogen ratio content. Mm-hmm. Now, when this happens, this is why the canopy is so important, because now the canopy is giving you the rest of the weed suppression that you need. 
And that's why in, in our situation where we've gone all no-till, all zero chemistry, we, we no longer use any chemistry, we have to depend solely on the biomass from the cover crop and then the canopy from the cash crop to be the weed suppressor. And, and it's this whole idea of you had kind of said overall your farm started out as a bacterial farm and yeah. so you've been able to get yeah, that it's, it's building that fungal system yeah. going any anyone who is is mass destruction with tillage to their soil high fertility high chemistry is in a bacterial based farm now bacteria is good but we can't be all the way bacteria and hardly any fungal yeah. that's why i talk about balance We've got to be heading toward balance. I mean, it's just like the human life. Everything we do is trying to be, get balance in our life, get balance in our gut, get balance in your daily schedule, your family life. It's no different. We have to balance out the, the fungal to bacterial relationships. We've got to balance out the predator to prey relationships. And then we balance out the, the nutrients, the minerals, the biology, and everything else that's going in. Because... It's well-known facts, and I, I don't know what these things are, but I'm just going to pick a couple of, of, of instances. If you get too much calcium in your system, then that affects the way other things work. Again, I don't know what those are. I just yeah. know that you get these imbalances, and maybe phosphorus can't be taken up because of that. Or maybe boron is too low, and if we raised boron, then that makes three other things come to life because now the transmission going below our feet is happening. Mm -hmm. You know, the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi are the communication backbone of this whole network. There's not going to be any transfer of nutrients until it goes through that network. Right. And and that's that's this communication that we are just starting to understand. The second most striking slide for me, and that one that I think people were really impressed with, was the one where you, and it really backed up your argument of uh, treating cover crops like a cash crop was the one showing the power of legume cocktails, and you laid out those financials. Yeah. Can you just, I don't know, off the yeah. top of your head, you can just yeah. lay out some of the, the, the real financials, the kind of right. bottom line, what yeah. you're seeing from that? Yeah, let me, let me explain a little bit what we're doing yeah. so maybe people can hear this and go out and do it themselves. What you do is you go out in your fields where these cover crops are growing and you measure out a two-foot by two-foot square and you get a pair of shears or clippers or something, and you clip everything off in this square at the ground level, clip it off, put it in a bag, overnight it to your lab, and ask for a feed analysis. They will then send you back all of this data, NPK, boron, sulfur, calcium, every, they'll send you everything, carbon to nitrogen ratio, everything. Then you now, since you know that it was a two-foot by two-foot square, you can translate this out onto an per-acre basis. Okay, okay. Right. so now we're up to speed now. Okay, now what I decided to do was to see what the value of the N, P, and K was at the different growth stages of this, this legume package. And when we got to the maximized point of what that, that legume package was meant to do for us, because that's the whole purpose here. You plant a, a cocktail to let it maximize what it was intended to do. Yeah. In this case, it's a legume. So its purpose is to fix nitrogen. Right. So when we got down to the end of what it could maximize, we had basically gotten $1,000 
worth of N, P, and K from that above ground material when you translate that into today's prices. It's crazy. And I, and I think, you know, I, here I am in, in Montana where they don't grow hardly any corn or beans, but yet everyone understood that slide because, see, they can take that same thinking process to their crop rotation, their system, and incorporate the same concepts. That's why the guy from Indiana was in Montana talking to the farmers and ranchers here. Yeah. You also laid out the savings that you're getting, you know, the input savings. Yeah, and this goes back to your carbon footprint. I mean, right now we have, we have reduced diesel fuel on our farm by 50%. We've taken all the other inputs to zero. And on a farm of our size, we right now are saving uh, a little over $2 million a year on inputs. Wow. I mean, that's crazy. So I know I, I talk about the fact that I don't much care about yield, but don't get me wrong. We have to have yield to pay the bills. We have to have yield to, to calculate ROI. Mm-hmm. But my point when I say this is I'm not driving our system for higher yields. I'm driving our system for higher profitability. And that doesn't always mean high right. yields. Not always the same thing. That's right. And so I care more about higher profitability than I do about higher yields. Yeah. And I, the, the bottom line for you is you said you don't use crop insurance or government programs. Nope. Haven't had any crop insurance in, in four years. Haven't been in ARC PLC for four years. I, I take pride in saying that because I truly believe in the system that we have, the resiliency that we have, that we no longer need those subsidy payments to farm. You're not afraid to experiment, and you're not no. afraid to talk about your failures, no. and it was That's evident. Well, oh yeah, what is it again? Outcomes we did not expect. Yeah, I like that better. <laughs> That's much better. What's something you're really excited about maybe uh, trying it? You probably hear a lot about a, a lot of stuff going on and talk to a lot of farmers, but is there something that you're really kind of the next step that you're really interested in? Yeah, I, I'm really going to focus on epigenetics, uh, and I'm going to focus on... Uh, how we can get more hormones, more stimulants into the soil to, to energize the microbial biome to then take us to the next level. I mean, if we can figure out how to turn on certain sectors of the microbial biome or maybe turn off certain sectors with certain exudates from certain plants, I mean, this can be done. When we get to that point, then we have a valid case for going to the masses and saying, you no longer need all those inputs. This is the system that now we're going to put in place. And that's where I think the future is. For people who aren't familiar, can you explain epigenetics? Epigenetics, uh, it's EPI and then genetics. So epigenetics. The basic uh, definition of epigenetics is allowing a an organism to adapt to your system and your environment. So, in other words... We went back 30 years and, and purchased soybean genetics that were off patent. I want to state that again. Genetics that are off patent because it's not legal to bin run any other genetics unless they're off patent. So we went back 30 years, got these genetics, we grew them out. They'll give, they'll, you pay for it, but they'll give you 100 seeds. So you're hand planting 100 seeds. Raise them, hand harvest plant that out, plant that out, and now in year four, we had enough beans to plant 40 acres. That bean is adapting and going to evolutionary change in our system. And I want it to adapt and thrive 
and change to whatever because Brian, we're in a jungle here. I mean, we're we're no till, we're no chemistry, we're mechanically terminating. There's all kinds of stuff going on. So when you think about the current genetics of hybrids that the farmers are using today, they're not being bred for that environment. They're bred for a clean field, no debris, no nothing, high fertility, high tillage, high inputs. That's what those seeds are bred for. We're not that. We're the other way. So I want to go back and find genetics that will change and prosper and thrive and adapt to our system. The other thing that I just re- remembered was you had some really great videos and it looks like you're having really good luck with roller crimping. Yeah. So a lot of farmers in Minnesota and Northern Iowa are experimenting with that. have had mixed results, but it sounds like you've been able to kind of get that system down a little bit. The INJ roller crimper has the uh, original makings of the Rodale Institute roller crimper and they use a chevron pattern pattern right. on the roller right. so at, in theory as you're rolling that ride down it's going to get crimped probably three different times on different angles because of the chevron pattern okay. and that's what they want to do they want to break that stem down if someone's having trouble out there because of the fact of planting soybeans into the rye at boot stage and then rolling the rye and the beans down together then i would make a suggestion that you delay your planting until the the rye is closer to anthesis and roll that rye down first and then plant your beans because sometimes people that do complain about this system they have the the soybeans will struggle because this rye is getting so tall and it's shading the sunlight out the beans are struggling and i i can i get that so then you try to just change when you do it so and let, let, me, let me go at this a different angle. If you didn't want to wait until the rye was anthesis, then plant maybe seven days before that, and then just before the bean is to come out of the ground, roll everything down. Yeah. Then you, that bean won't struggle so hard to come up through that, that mat that you've just laid down. We're playing with some different things now. I'll tell you, the last two years, and, and, and we test all the time on the farm, but the last two years, our best beans have been planted into wheat that we did we did nothing with. We didn't combine, we didn't roll, we, we just pulled in, planted the beans into the wheat and walked away. And, and, and for two years now, those are our best soybeans. So we've got to think about that. And so we've got more acres now of just wheat with gonna be, have beans put into them and we'll see what happens. So the roller maybe maybe we can take a little break on the roller and, and go down and go down this avenue a little bit. Actually, it was an air seeder, John Deere air seeder, seven and a half inch row spacing. So when you look at that that particular piece of equipment, there's 64 row units, and each row unit has got a three inch gauge wheel on it. There's a lot being rolled, laid down at the time of planting, but still, when that there's the wheat will stand, a lot of the wheat will stand back up. You you get pretty good weed suppression. Nothing's been rolled down. I don't know yet what's going on here. There's some kind of a synergy yet that we haven't figured out. But now the last thing I want to tell the folks is diversity is imperative here. It's imperative. There's many ways to look at diversity, but I'm only going to talk about one of them right now. We have decided that when you get late in the fall and you can't plant anything else but a cereal grain because it's too late. Okay, that's not good enough because that's a monoculture. So what I've decided to do was we're mixing wheat, rye, and barley together and now getting diversity within those three grasses because they each will put out a different exudate. Now, it's not 
the kind of diversity that would be ideal across a 16-way species, but it's better than doing a monoculture of cereal rye. So there's just so much. It's, you know, I, I love what I'm doing. I absolutely love it. And, and my advice out there for anyone, when you wake up in the morning and you don't like what you're doing, go do something else because mm-hmm. life's too short. But this is a beautiful way to farm. You feel, you feel wholesome. You feel like you're doing something good for the planet and, and good for people. And, and that just makes my day. I love it. For more information on Rick Clark and links to resources LSP has put together on building soil health profitably, See the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode number 296 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Morgandale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 